Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. How do refrigerators keep food cold? Who really invented the radio? What was the worst video game of all time? On Tech Stuff, we answer these questions and more. You can get brand new episodes of Tech Stuff every Wednesday on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and anywhere else you get podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to get through this thing called Prince's Death. Oh, I know. That's beautiful. Oh, my God. Well, I didn't write it. Prince did. I know. Prince Rogers Nelson. Prince Rogers Nelson, dead at 57. And Caroline and I had been planning to do an episode about queer and androgynous fashion before the tragedy happened, and as soon as we learned in the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast studio That's right. that Prince died, we realized that, oh, this fashion episode, this has got to be for Prince. It's, yeah, it's got to be, because honestly, he is the perfect encapsulation of so many queer and androgynous fashion talking points. Yeah, well, and also such an example of how we often think about androgynous in too androgynous fashion, I should say, in too narrow of terms. Mm -hmm, exactly. I mean, he kind of visually myth busts what we think of when we think of androgynous fashion, which I feel like is often uh, like when I think of it, I think of like a, 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 a very thin pale person with a bowl cut and a very large bulky um t-shirt like a long you know knee length <laughs> in a, gar a garfield nightshirt yes. <laughs> i think of garfield nightshirts it's true who knew it was the height of androgynous fashion <laughs> but i mean as soon though as word of prince's death spread we started to see all of these 
remembrances and appreciations of him based around his fashion and also his just like outright gender fluidity in his fashion presentation. Yeah, I mean, it's it was really incredible to see the outpouring of fans who were celebrating him not only for his music because he is a was oh god was a hyper talented musician but just the effect that he had on people by blowing through this world with such confidence and sense of self and he really did not care or he outwardly did not appear to care uh what people thought of him. I mean, he's a guy who blurred all of the lines with between gender and ethnicity and sexuality. I mean, for him, it was about the art. And I think that that inspired so many kids of whatever gender or sexuality. Well, and all of that, too, reflects his music and how mm-hmm. he blurred so many different genres that he just seemed to also instantly master. Um So... Before we get into a beautiful timeline of Prince's clothes, uh, which I can't wait for, um, and I can't wait to tell you what my favorite outfit of his is that I really want, um, let's talk a little bit about the history and evolution of androgynous or queer fashion that really toyed with entrenched gender norms. Yeah, and we, we've kind of already addressed this idea that we tend to think of androgynous fashion as basically skinny white women donning menswear, uh, despite the fact that the word androgynous means of indeterminate sex. Because when you think about it, like, what does androgynous fashion in magazines, for instance, tend to look like, right? It does tend to be some skinny model, you know, like maybe she's got her head shaved, But it does tend to be like white women wearing button ups or loafers or something. And in very muted tones. Yeah. There would have been no purple. No, no purple at all. Um, But what's so great about Prince and, and why we wanted to tie him into this conversation is because by adopting the frills and the heels and the glitter and the hairdos and the polka dots. Yeah. the Don't forget the polka dots. Crop tops and the peekaboo laser cut yellow chaps uh he he really showed us that androgynous fashion is more than some skinny white person in a magazine that it is men adopting other looks as well and he also proved that you actually can you being really only prince rogers nelson can make peekaboo laser cut Yellow chaps work. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I mean, the shoulder pads on them really, I mean, you know, I don't know. The shoulder pads and the chaps. (laughs) (laughs) The chaps shoulder pads. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Would those be hip, hip pads? I, I don't know. (laughs) Um, but first, okay. Yeah. Like Kristen said, let's first dive into the history and evolution of what we're calling queer or androgynous fashion. Not that those two are necessarily the same thing, but you know, there's a Venn diagram. Um, and a lot of this information we need to credit to Marlon Komar, who wrote a fabulous history in Bustle, Kimberly Chrisman Campbell, who wrote a great article about this in The Atlantic, and Emily Eldridge, who wrote a thesis in the Journal of Anthropology. And as we walk through the history of queer fashion, we're also walking through the history of how people looked at gender. Yeah, I mean, because before there was a time when our clothing wasn't gendered at all. Pretty much everyone was wearing tunics. You know, everyone was wearing those Garfield (laughs) T-shirts 
around Caroline. Perfect. <laughs> so as fashion as we think about it today develops, it does gradually go through this gendering process that takes a while. But as Joe Bearclaw Paoletti notes in her book, Pink and Blue, telling the boys from the girls in America, quote, gender distinctions are among the oldest and most widespread functions of dress. And if we look, for instance, though, at uh, in 1431 at Joan of Arc, I mean, she's kind of the original androgyny pioneer. <laughs> Because one of the reasons why she was denounced by the Inquisition and burned alive was because she really claimed that it was God's command for her to wear men's clothes, keep her hair cut short, and keep, quote, no garment which might indicate her sex. Uh, Her fashion was on fire. Yeah, I mean, oh, (laughs) hashtag too soon. Um, But that right there, no garment which might indicate her sex, that's. The definition of androgyny, right? That is. Someone who would not necessarily be the definition of sexless would be, uh, Louis the 14th. Oh yeah. Not by, <laughs> not by any stretch. If, if Joan of Arc was plain, tunic, sexless, bowl colorless, cut. bowl cut. Yeah. And now I'm just picturing Javier Bardem from No Country for Old Men, which is not I'm my brain is like leaving me behind on a tangent. But anyway, Louis the 14th in the 18th century totally decked himself out in colorful fabric, lace, ribbons, jewels, feather and embroidery. And he really embodied the idea and the concept that you can be powerful and masculine, but also pretty because honestly, wearing all this stuff showed off your wealth. Oh, yeah. I mean, because before fashion really became signals of gender, that kind of opulent, almost prince-esque fashion would have signaled wealth and status. No one would have seen Louis XIV and been like, well, someone's a pretty effeminate in his wardrobe. Because, I mean, at the time, it was money, really, that equaled masculinity. So, I mean, no worries that someone might think you too fancified. I mean, of course, Louis XIV also famously wore his high heels that had uh, red soles on them, and only mm. he in the court was allowed to wear the red-soled um, high heels, which, of course, now are the trademark look of uh, Louboutin high heels. But then soon enough, women started co-opting high heels. But then you get the gendering, not of heels and flats, like flats for dudes, but just a widening of heels like guys were like okay you know what we're gonna we're gonna keep wearing these high heels ladies are starting to do it too it's okay we'll just wear a chunky heel (laughs) guys everybody get the memo it's a chunky heel for dudes narrow heels for the ladies i want to get that memo yield yieldy memo was there a newsletter that went out i think they had like a little pigeon facts service (laughs) is here by decreed the chunky heel nail nail that to a church store (laughs) Um, and in the 19th century, we see the emergence of the London dandy. Uh, this guy is, is super fashionable and he is what we would today label effeminate. 
carrying a basically just a bunch about his appearance. And at the same time, though, on the lady side of things, you've got advocates for reform dress. Kristen and I have talked about reform dress a lot on the podcast. And this is women adopting bloomers, trashing their heavier garb because people are like, oh, wait, like if I fall in the water, I'll drown because my clothes are so heavy and also I can't breathe and my rib cage and organs are misshapen now. So really before we had the second wave feminists throwing their bras into a trash can on the Atlantic City boardwalk in the late 60s, we have... Uh, the reform dress suffragists throwing their oh, their heavy skirts in a what would they just like a fire an old, <laughs> an old fire sure a fire or uh, I don't know why I'm assuming they didn't have trash cans they threw them into the back of a buggy and hit the horse on the butt so it ran away is there that a, is that elaborate enough I think that I think that's that's true um, but of course the um, the the dandy fashion would wear away just quick note um it's evident in the song yankee doodle dandy <laughs> that's when we see no i'm serious when we see this dandy uh sentiment uh becoming reviled as like oh no guys like we we need to get serious with our clothes and it was actually something called the great masculine renunciation which was this kind of fashion turning point in the later 1800s where men were like okay Send out another pigeon memo. <laughs> we need to start wearing way more boring clothes. <laughs> so this is when we just get suits? Kind of. Yeah, it's like leading the way to the suit. Interesting. But what, and you know, we'll, we'll get into this, but the suit, which is like boring standard man uniform, would become radical when women put it on. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, you just get the boring gray, like, coat and pants and shoes until... Wait, what? Caroline, is it pants or a pant? Oh, Lord. Stacey London. Stacey London. Where are you? Somewhere wearing a pant. Yeah, probably a pant. Or maybe a, a cropped pant since it's spring. Oh, maybe. Um, well, culottes are back. Oh, God. Um, okay, so in the early 20th century, Paul Poiret sets women free. We've done a whole episode on this man, which I highly encourage that you go listen to. But his freewheeling... Lucy goosey designs freed women from their corsets and ushered in, in dresses, kind of a long, lean, um, pure waist, as Stacey London would say. Uh, but his designs also included harem pants. I remember when, uh, what was the daughter's name, the youngest daughter's name in Downton Abbey? Sybil. Sybil. She came home, uh, with, with some, a harem pant outfit. Yeah. And then look what happened to her. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> um, and again, what's going on simultaneously is you have that famous Coco Chanel creating a more masculine silhouette for fashionable ladies of the time because she believed that you should be able to dress in a way that expresses you, pant or skirt, whatever. But if we look at Hollywood and women's androgynous fashion, it starts to arise in... The 1930s and 40s, kind of sporadically, um, but really the androgynous fashion fashion plate <laughs> would have been Marlena Diedrich, who um, in a film of hers, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, where she plays a cabaret performer. She has a scene where she comes out looking amazing in a top hat and tuxedo. And she kisses a woman on the lips. Scandalous. Well, and Marlena Dietrich, uh, let's bring it full circle for stuff I've never told you fans. She was friends with 
Anime Wong, who we talked about in our episode about um, the fetishization of Asian women. Um, but Dietrich, even off screen, would sport pants and even uh, a suit from time to time, just like Catherine Hepburn. That's right. Catherine Hepburn, daughter of a suffragist who I'm pretty sure. And, you know, listeners, you can always tell us if you're interested in this. But I want to do it anyway. I kind of she was the daughter of a suffragist. And I want to do a double episode on Catherine Hepburn and her mom. Um, because they were such impressive ladies together. But writing about Hepburn, Komar talks about, and I don't know if I had heard this story before. I had not. So writing about Catherine Hepburn in particular, uh, Komar says that Hepburn threatened film executives with walking around set in her underwear when they swiped her pant outfit. Yeah. Hepburn was like, listen, I'm going to wear my my pants or my panties. Right. Shoes, yeah, fellas. exactly. Um, when we get to the 1950s after World War II, this is when we first have the development, slowly but surely, the development of even the term gender coming to mean what we think of it today, describing the social and culturally created and constructed roles that we associate with biological sex. But that's really happening in the background. Um, but when it comes to fashion, of course, post-World War II, I mean, it becomes very gender segregated. Dad's in the suit. Mom is in her Betty Draper costume. Well, yeah, I mean, because mom was essentially sent back to the kitchen when dad came back from the war and wanted his job back. So all of a sudden, and again, this is another uh, sminty topic that we've tackled before, that those gender roles, we see them get really entrenched post-war because of men coming back and wanting to reassert their place in society while their wives had been out working. And then the 1960s, we see a reaction against that. And Joe Pauletti, who we cited earlier in her book, Sex and You Unisex, fashion, feminism, and the sexual revolution talks about how 60s unisex clothes are a reaction to that gender stereotyping and a nod to the idea that gender and biological sex might not totally equate. But as with our kind of stereotypical idea of androgynous fashion today, that fashion focused more on women adopting masculine silhouettes rather than say, oh, well, guys, here's a skirt for you. Um, but also during this time, we have this uh, London counterculture of the teddy boys who dressed like Edwardian dandies. And there are so many fantastic photos of them online. And they had teddy girl counterparts who wore lots of structured blazers, blouses and trousers. They would often still wear skirts, but still had, um, I mean, I guess you could say semi-androgynous uh, suiting. That they yeah, were there. almost like a Janelle Monet kind of situation. Yes, yes. Well, and especially with their updos, too. Yeah, yeah. And you're also seeing the rise of super slender models like Twiggy, who, while she was obviously a super cute woman, still had that more flat, androgynous figure. And in 1966, years after Marlene Dietrich first sported her tuxedo in that movie and kissed a woman, Yves Saint Laurent created the first tuxedo specifically for women. 
And writing about this creation, Komar cites uh, St. Laurent's muse, Violetta Sanchez, who explained that it was super radical, especially among the stuffy bourgeois set, to see women, quote, take possession of man's attire and the freedom it gave her. It took her out of that spot where she was fragile. And we'll see that concept come up again in the 80s with one particular musician. Now, I got to tell you, though, Caroline, that Yves Saint Laurent tuxedo really just kind of looks like a tuxedo. You know what I mean? It's not like... But it was radical at the right, time. Right. I mean, it's a woman in a tuxedo. But so for listeners, if you're trying to picture what it looks like, just picture a tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> um, then in 1968, a couple years later, you have designers, including Pierre Cardin and Paco Rabanne, creating these unisex, almost space agey fashions with a lot of synthetic f- fabrics. So steer clear fires, <laughs> open <Yeah>. fires, friends <laughs> um, and department stores very briefly. I mean, we're talking only in 1968 for a few months, got in on the trend and even set up unisex sections. But then that kind of gave way to cutesier, non-threatening his and hers fashion. So his and hers versions of the same kinds of things. Yeah. Like the jumpsuits, the his and her jumpsuits that I really want my fiance and I to get. (laughs) He doesn't know this yet. Yeah, just uh, subtly, subtly pass this episode along to him. Well, and, you know, it's in honor of Prince and all of his Paisley jumpsuits. Ah. So why should we not wear them? I, that's what I'm saying, man. Uh, you know, and so, again, we've been focusing so much on women adopting male silhouettes. But in the 60s, in the same era, rock stars get in on the fun. People like Jimi Hendrix, Mick Jagger, and especially... David Bowie. These guys start toying with gender and they're adopting the frills, the hip huggers, the glitter, the prints, and especially the heels. And I hadn't heard this term before, Caroline, um, but this fashion movement modeled by these rockers uh, is called the Peacock Revolution. I love it. That emerged in London and it was coinciding with the decriminalization of homosexuality and also the sexual revolution. And a quick side note, um, if anyone's interested in some related summer reading, I highly recommend the oral history, uh, Please Kill Me, about the punk movement that gets into some of this stuff. Oh, and well, it's interesting, though. I mean, fashion, you can never say that fashion is apolitical because this peacock revolution was not only a way for straight and bi guys to play with gender and fashion and looks uh, and norms, but it was also a way for closeted gay men to be able to explore these looks as well without having to come out of the closet. If it's part of the fashion trend and it's being demonstrated by like super masculine sex gods like Mick Jagger and David Bowie, well then... I can get away with it, too, and not have to uh, come out as a gay man yet. So as opposed to those unisex fashions designed, you know, by those like high end names, it seems like this movement in the 60s, this peacock revolution is a legit queering of fashion. Right. Because it's definitely not taking the sex. And I mean that as both biological sex and sex sex. It's not 
removing it from the Mm -hmm. clothes or from the person wearing them. If anything, it is emphasizing the sex of the person wearing it, whether that is a woman in a uh, like a sci fi movie and she's wearing a, a quote unquote unisex tunic. But of course, it shows off her figure or whether that is someone like Mick Jagger and hip huggers or a David Bowie and his many, many outfits. It still emphasizes the sex of the person. But you're right. This is when we start to see the queering of fashion. And all this continues along with punk music into the 70s and 80s with bands like the New York Dolls. And you see trends, though, um, that you now see in uh, I want to say it was it's really popular in South Korea of guys and girls uh, dressing exactly alike, wearing the same clothes. Um, and you also have trends at home of non-gendered child rearing. That sounds a lot like what we hear about in terms of parenting today. And in terms of high fashion, you have Halston's ultra suede shirt dress that was a feminine twist on menswear. So what Halston did was basically take a button down shirt, lengthen it, belt it and suedeify it. Suedeify it. Perfect. Yeah. And so while working women are adopting trousers and peacoats and dress shirts, men are sporting Mandarin collar jackets, tunics, turtlenecks, ponchos and ascots. Fair listeners, just Google unisex ponchos from the 70s and just look at the glory that is these crocheted atrocities of men and women wearing matching uh, ponchos. It's both wonderful and terrible. You know what? I would rather have than matching jumpsuits with my boo. Matching caftans. Ooh. This was the era of the caftan. That's right. And I mean, what is there a more regal and comfortable (laughs) garment that someone can wear than a caftan? I would submit that there is not. But I love this evolution here because going from the New York Dolls, so you've got, again, like these rockers who are wearing full on makeup, um, you know, down to the, the couple poolside in Palm Springs sporting their caftans. Caftans. I, and I, getting caftans. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> so sorry. Uh, so moving into the 80s, and we should put a little asterisk here because people – Late 70s, early 80s is when Prince is emerging. In the 80s, we see fashion start to retreat back along gendered lines because nothing is anything more than a reaction to something else, right? And so you've had all of the, like, genderless child-rearing type of things going on in the 70s. But then you see in the 80s, women, you know, needing to be heavily made up with their hair done in in dresses again and men in power suits. But like, yes, that's all true. But women were wearing very masculine women's wear, too. What with their shoulder pads and power suits and stripes on their suits. And so then we start to see the queering of those suits when women put them on. So you've got people like Annie Lennox with her orange pixie cut, her pinstripe suits, bright lipstick. And she herself is super slender and androgynous looking. And then you've got megastar Grace Jones walking that line between sexy, undeniable woman and basically androgynous alien from outer space. Oh, Grace Jones. Caroline, we should also do an episode on her just so we can luxuriate in her flat top, her suits, her lipstick, 
her just musculature, everything that outwardly expressed her complete and total self-possession. Um, for instance, she has this fabulous quote uh, in which she says, I never ask for anything in a relationship because I have this sugar daddy I've created for myself, and it's me. I am my own sugar daddy. I have a very strong male side, which I develop to protect my female side. And if I want a diamond necklace, I can go and buy myself a diamond necklace. Yeah, I remember seeing Grace Jones when I was really little. and Like IRL? Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't go see her. But I mean, like in magazines or whatever. And just being like, this person is unlike any person i have seen before because she was she she was in such like she had just such self-possession like you said she was fully in control of this powerful androgynous but still sexy image and then when you move into the 90s and you move away from the grace jones silhouette you see the revival of the what we saw in the like 60s and 70s and 80s in terms of punk and men and women dressing alike in leather jackets and jeans and boots and whatever because in the emergence of grunge you see again men and women sporting the same uh flannel shirts, ripped jeans and doc martens but then of course you have people like Kurt Cobain wearing baby doll dresses, pigtails, eyeliner and women's sunglasses and <laughs> Caroline, I've got to tell you, I just realized that um, today, as we're recording this episode, I am wearing a very um, my so-called life Angela Chase esque baby doll dress. Did not plan it, but um, I feel very. Uh, I feel like I'm really close to the subject. Today. No, I'm pretty sure I had that dress in seventh grade. <laughs> I, thank you. I love it. Thanks. Pearl, pearl buttons and all. It's it's very comfortable. <laughs> so we got to hop back a, a little bit in our timeline to start off our Prince timeline because he really gets going in terms of his public presentation in the late 70s and early 80s. And really from the get-go, I mean, he's just putting it all out there fashion-wise and kind kind of literally too, putting it out there in the sense of wearing like thigh highs and bikini bottoms um, on stage, much to the chagrin of Rolling Stones fans who he originally opened for. Um, But he was always blurring those lines between masculine and feminine fashion. Yeah, and I want to hit on some of the some of the high notes, some of the print signatures before we dive into this timeline. So what's been really interesting is to follow these trends that he sets and sets for himself. Uh, including his sunglasses. You know, he sported everything from asymmetrical 80 shades to granny glasses to more recently those third eye sunglasses. So they're big and round and dark and include one lens over his forehead, third his, eye. His third eye, of his course. His third eye, yeah. And, and of course, the hair, whether it was long and flowy curls, worn as a natural afro or in an updo secured with a scarf. And don't forget... The perfectly waxed brows, the perfectly defined mustache and beard, and the perfectly defined eyeliner. And don't forget about those signature high heels. Um, he famously told Rolling Stone in 1985, people say I'm always wearing heels because I'm short. He was 5'2", by the way. But he said, I wear heels because the women like them. 
Yeah. And just like with the whole peacock revolution idea, uh, as Vanessa Friedman wrote in The New York Times, on women, he'll suggest sex. Prince showed they could function the same way for men. But I mean, he wore them all the time. Oh, yeah. In Mike Tyson's memoir, which, no, we did not read. This was just cited in an <laughs> article. Um, in Mike Tyson's memoir, he claims, and I believe it, that Prince wore them to play basketball. Why not? I mean, to me, like, heels don't even look weird on Prince. Yeah. Because they're just so him. I kind of imagine that um, Prince's feet look like Barbie feet. You know, <laughs> they're just like already curved and, and ready to just slip into a perfectly fitting heel. Oh, I love that so much. Um, okay. So we've got to go back to like mid androgyny queering fashion timeline to 1979 because the cover of his second album is just him shirtless with flowing wavy hair. But the back, the back of that album is him naked on a Pegasus. So does being naked on a Pegasus count as queer fashion? I don't know, man. It definitely counts as Prince fashion. It counts as amazing. Yeah. Oh, I wonder how many people will in, in memoriam get Prince on a Pegasus, uh, tattoos. I'm just saying, throwing it out there. Um, in 1981, uh, he rolls up to this place called Flippers Roller Disco Boogie Lounge. Want to go. In Los Angeles, wearing a tank top, bandana, thigh highs, and black underwear. And in his dirty mind and controversy era, he often just sported a trench coat, bikini briefs, again, the thigh highs, and a neckerchief. And uh, it took people a minute to get used to this. But yeah. if you look at the lyrics of a single controversy, you know, he's already over it. He says, uh, some people call me rude. I wish we all were nude. I wish there was no black or white. I wish there were no rules. Yeah. So he's fully aware. I mean, he has never been anything but genuinely that, which is blurring those lines, wishing we were nude and there were no rules. Yeah. I mean, he lived as if there were no rules. He was yeah. like, well, okay, on, just... on Pegasus's <laughs> on Pegasus's and heels. Right. You know, we can't see his feet on the Pegasus. So I bet if we could see the full photo, <laughs> the Barbie he, feet, he would be. No, he would probably be in heels. Yeah, true. You know, who knows? I mean, yeah, because you, you can't really see anything from the waist down. He could be in those thigh highs. But again, like, here's an example of him. Blurring, like, what would be on a woman, super sexy to the point of almost inappropriate and titillating, like perhaps a stripper would be wearing that on stage, but also blending it with, like, uh, a flasher in the park on this dude. And, I mean, and it just was him. It was so him. And I think it's so funny, not funny, but weird and ironic that Rolling Stones fans were booing and throwing stuff because, hello, we just cited Mick Jagger as part of that whole peacock revolution of blurring those gender and fashion lines and part of, like, queering fashion 20 years earlier. And here they are booing him. And it was uh, really fascinating to go back and read um, a piece on Prince in The New York Times from 1981 where... Already, music critics are like, okay, this this guy is something. He's already a legend. And they were fawning over his um, ability to mix music styles and his just like sheer talent because he played and produced and sang everything. But also, too, the critic writes, the music transcends racial stereotyping 
precisely because it's almost all Prince. Prince himself transcends racial stereotyping because, as he once put it, I never grew up in one particular culture. And you can see this critic throughout the piece kind of grappling with this this vision of Prince, not only what he's hearing, but how that collides with what he sees. Mm-hmm, that's right. And in 1984, what we see is the emergence of that iconic purple look with the ruffled shirts. It's the look that Dave Chappelle wore on The Chappelle Show, and it totally echoes Louis the Fourteenth. And so it was under the eye of designer Marie France that he got his purple rain look. The ruffles, the pearl-studded purple jackets, the pink feather shoulder piece, the stacked boots, and Kristen, yes, the paisley jumpsuits. And when he accepted his Oscar for the film Purple Rain's soundtrack, <laughs> not, not Purple Rain, you know, the screenplay, um, when he won that in 1985, he accepted it in a black pantsuit, black lace gloves, and a glittering purple shawl and heels. But his two um, lady musicians, The Revolution, that he played with, they were wearing the Purple Rain yep. suiting, which yeah. was just, a f- I mean, it created a fabulous trio up there. Well, yeah, because I can't, I can't remember which woman it was, but she was wearing his brocade suit with the pink feather shoulder piece. And you see pictures of him wearing the exact same outfit because he was tiny, just like a lady. Oh, you think that they wore the same I, suit? I mean, I bet it was the exact same shoulder piece. I wouldn't be surprised if it was the same suit. I can't imagine Prince sharing clothes. Could you imagine what it would be like for her to be like, if Prince is like, yeah, you can borrow my purple rain suit. Be like, no, man, there's no, I, I could, I couldn't possibly. You do whatever Prince tells you. <sighs> um, clothes wise anyway. <laughs> one, one of my favorite tour looks though came in 1986 with his tour for the album Parade where he was all about the crop tops. Yeah, he was. Oh my gosh. Um, listeners, I'm a fan of crop tops. Yes, I'm 31 and I wear crop tops because why not? <laughs> um, I, you know, since Alana Glazer does it all the time on Broad City, I say it's okay for me too. <laughs> um, but he's wearing in uh, one of the photos on Getty that's been circulating a lot, this asymmetrical black crop top with a row of white buttons. And I want it, not the asymmetrical style but just like the black with the white buttons real big fan i mean he looks great he looks great well wasn't he also wearing like bell-bottom trousers or something with that i think he was wearing just like tight pants in the bottom i mean all of his pants were were tight in that era he got a little looser as he got older well, two years after the parade tour, after he released Love Sexy, and that's the one with a naked prince floating amid giant purple flowers on the cover with his arm draped over his nipples. Uh, he was super big into sporting this black and white polka dot blouse with an oversized collar, matching white and black polka dot high-waisted pants, and of course, heels. Um, Caroline, they were matching polka dot heels, and this is my favorite Prince look because I love a polka dot. Yeah. And it's almost like the blouse style is uh, kind of like a high-necked pussy bow blouse that we still see today. I've got a couple in my closet. So I'm like, ooh, black pussy bow blouse with, uh, you know, white dots and those high waist pants. But the high heels, Mm -hmm. black and white polka dot high heels, hello. It's just a fabulous look. Yeah, it was fabulous. And... 
so feminine. Oh yeah. You know, but but on Prince it was just Prince. It wasn't masculine or feminine. It was just sexy Prince wearing polka dots. Yeah, have you ever I, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen seen a fella in polka dotted pants and nothing is coming to mind. Nothing does come to mind except Prince. All right. And in 1991 on MTV for his performance of Get Off with the New Power Generation, this, my friends, is when he sports the spectacular yellow laser cut, I'll just say bottomless suit, uh, which, of course, the top, the suit top, complete with uh, shoulder pads, was a crop top, Kristen. Oh, yes. Uh, and yeah, and heels, yellow matching heels to match the fantastic suit. Yeah, I don't think he never wore anything but heels, right? No, no nothing but Can heels. Can you imagine Prince in flip-flops? Just No, right? No. Because it's the Barbie feet. Like, yeah, yeah. Just like work. Barbie can't walk in flip-flops. Yeah, exactly. And if we look at the early 2000s, he's still wearing tailored suits, but they're so bright and vivid as opposed to that monochromatic palette that we usually associate with supposedly androgynous fashion. Um, one of those looks, though, came in 2004, where he he was sporting a, a look that we would have really never seen before, although you could say that about each one of Prince's looks. Um, but he was wearing his hair straight, and it was about shoulder length. He had a long goatee and these asymmetrical... Uh, red and white 80s sunglasses. <laughs> and like, if you had not told me, oh, that's Prince, I would not have known. Well, it was for the Essence Music Festival. And his reasoning was that he was tired of being the center of attention. And I'm like, you're freaking adorable. I love that, like, when Prince wants to wear a disguise because he's tired of being the center of attention, he just sticks out that much more. He's like, let me just straighten my hair and put on these very obvious sunglasses. <laughs> Is anyone looking? Is anyone looking? Um, yeah, and I mean, this our timeline, I mean, we could talk forever. I mean, one of his last iconic trends was his tunics. Oh, I mean, he wore a white studded one to Coachella in 2008. More recently, he wore the whole gold outfit, and that's when he was sporting his third eye sunnies. Um but I mean, the the guy is like one in one in a trillion. I mean, there's no one like him fashion wise. But because of that, because of his line blurring and his, you know, give no flips attitude, it really opened the door for other people to be able to explore their own identities through fashion, to explore their own tunic phases. Right. Which I really hope to reach one day. <laughs> Just, just be patient. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, because we, we have to mention, though, uh, when he changed his name to the love symbol, which was the, the mix of the Mars and Venus male and female symbols. Um, and he did it because he wanted to make Warner Brothers mad. He um, didn't. He was like, OK, well, you want to use my name and you own my stuff. Well, I'm going to change my name to something that you can't even print. Um, and he wanted to brand himself and illustrate these parts of his identity, which were the fusions of the masculine and feminine as he saw it. Yeah. And the designer behind the symbol, one of the two or three designers behind the symbol, which is, of course, the the mix 
of the Mars and Venus symbols, uh, told Wired that he, Prince really wanted to mix the feminine and masculine energy because he was working with all of these women that he wanted to see boosted to fame. And so he saw those elements of male, female, masculine, feminine as being equally important and wanted to integrate them. And uh, this designer, Mitch Monson, said he was about approaching things differently and not discriminating. He was making this unified statement that everybody should be accepted. So in addition to doing things like writing slave on his face and changing his name to a symbol to irritate Warner Brothers, he was also just as part of that expressing that duality that he's so famous for. And his confidence in carrying that duality was key. I mean, it didn't matter what you thought of him. Prince is just going to Prince. And one thing that Travell Anderson over at the L.A. Times talked about in his remembrances of Prince is how he opened the door for black men to explore gender, sexuality and fashion. Uh, he wrote this image of a secure and assured black man embracing both the masculine and the feminine is what I remember most of the musician. Although I wasn't alive, the YouTube video of the moment became a reference point for this gender nonconforming man, Travell is referring to himself, who needed permission to be himself. And he goes on to say that Prince taught me how to transgress gender roles and that this is something pretty revelatory for black men in particular. Yeah, because Anderson writes Black men in his community grapple with those limiting gender expectations. Anderson writes, even now, black people more often find themselves born into this suffocating box that hews too closely to an identity that doesn't fully encapsulate our complexities and nuance. Anderson calls gender a straitjacket, but that it wasn't this way for Prince, who found a way to break free. He writes that Prince was a persona that was masculine and feminine, and the world had to deal. And he also talks about what a statement it made that Prince was so uh, so sexual in his presentation as well, considering all of the racist stereotyping around the hypersexualization mm-hmm. um, of black men and perceiving their sexuality, black male sexuality as predatory. And yet here you have Prince, who is arguably one of the most sexual pop stars of all time. Yeah, and I have to read this quote from Frank Ocean. I know it's been circulating a ton on the Internet since Prince died, but Frank Ocean put it this way. Quote, he learned early on how little value to assign to someone else's opinion of you, an infectious sentiment that seemed soaked into his clothes, his hair, his walk, his guitar and his primal scream. He was a straight black man who played his first televised set in bikini bottoms and knee high heeled boots. Epic. He made me feel more comfortable with how I identify sexually simply by his display of freedom from and irreverence for obviously archaic ideas like gender conformity. And so then basically, when you try to find a definition for what queer fashion is, that can be really challenging to pin it down but prince showed us what it could be and randy shandrosky who's the ceo of label lactic 
uh, said, yeah, you know, queer style is hard to define because it's a rejection of that dualistic thinking that would place a person into a category of being this or that. It is more about the disintegration of definitions. And so based on that definition, that non-definition definition, it really seems like Prince is the epitome of that because his whole identity was shaped in a way that broke down all of those barriers and made it possible for people to look at him and say, you're just you. And I mean, I can be just me then. Well, on every single level from his music and his relationships with uh, recording studios to his fashion to his just his day to day life, he embodied a freedom of expression constantly. And if we look at queer and androgynous fashion today, um, FIT director Valerie Steele says that designers are really kind of questioning clothing binaries, you know, questioning whether we really need male versus female dress. And you're seeing more clothes on runways that are androgynous or, as she says, with similar or the same looks for men and women. But the thing is, like that, that is one definition of androgyny. But that is not what Prince was doing. I mean, he was creating something altogether different too. Yeah. So I think that also goes to show how he's even more of a visual definition of what queer fashion can be beyond our matching caftans. That's right. That's exactly right. And I mean, if you look at the landscape today, it's super common to see men coming down the runway in skirts, those pussy bow blouses, fur coats, pink, all of these things that are like so have been the domain of women and feminine people. You also it's super common also to see women in sharp suits and minimal makeup. You've got more trans models walking in shows. And I mean, I know this is just me and I have like a feminist gender focused podcast, but like. I don't even think twice about this stuff. No. I don't I don't think twice about a man in a dress, whether it's for a women's line or a men's line or trans models. It's just like, yeah, I, I, OK, it's just bodies showing off clothes. But I think the real evidence of a cultural shift is that we are seeing it not just on the runways, mm-hmm. but also on sidewalks, because all, all of this, too, is making me think of Titus Andromedon in yeah. uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and how he absolutely plays around with his fashion. <laughs> the episode, the season where he's clearing out his closet. Oh, my gosh. I love it so much. Can we just do a Kimmy Schmidt <laughs> episode just so you and I can just watch Kimmy Schmidt over and over again? Over and again, yeah. Um, well, uh, you do have more and more designers creating unisex lines amid this climate of more and more people refusing to want to identify as specifically male or female. And Johnny Johansson, who's the founder of Acne, said, I've seen this new generation's attitude to fashion where the cut, the shape and the character of the garment is more the crucial thing rather than seeking approval from society or to follow set norms, which is totally Prince. I mean, you even have Kanye West sporting some black velvet mid-calf heeled boots in Paris. Yeah. I mean, this is he wishes he could be Prince, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kanye cannot come close to Prince. No. No offense, Kim K. (laughs) Yeah, for all this time she listens to us. Yeah. Secret listener. (laughs) Um, But uh, you're also seeing some stores, too, some higher-end stores that are eliminating men's and women's sections. Um, This is something that we talked about in our uh, fashion and feminism episode a while back. And in terms of 
women in our everyday presentations. I mean, think about how, you know, swimsuit season again is upon us and ladies are foregoing the razors um, and calling on us to free our nipples. Yeah, but you're also seeing Peacock Revolution Part 2 or maybe Part 30. I don't know where we are at this point. But you've got rappers like Atlanta's Young Thug uh, who, you know, talks about shopping in the women's section for better and tighter fitting jeans and appears in magazines wearing tool dresses. And, you know, it, it's just it's nothing that's going to go away, nor should it. If anything, we're going to just keep moving toward that androgynous fashion future, I highly doubt that that ever means that it's going to like completely erase gender lines in fashion. But it's just this whole conversation has just been evidence that Prince has always been at the cutting edge of that queering of fashion. Yeah, I mean, because I also don't think that androgynous fashion is somehow better or even say like more feminist than um, more gender traditional fashion styles. It's more about that element of freedom of expression. Are mm-hmm. we free to be able to dress in a way that we feel most comfortable in? Um, and really quickly, Caroline, talking about young, young thug shopping in the women's section. It reminds me too of the college town that you and I <laughs> attended college in, <laughs> um, which is, uh, a music town very much. And I knew, a few um, rocker fellas who wore women's jeans for, I, I, for the tight fit. My boyfriend in college did, or yeah. after college. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it, it wasn't it wasn't a super popular look yet. The whole skinny jean thing, in terms of mainstream. But Valerie Steele, the uh, fashion historian and FIT director, also had a really notable thing to say about why. Women in masculine clothes, that whole trend has been more successful over time than the more recent things that we've been seeing of men in more traditionally feminine clothes. And she said, if men are the ones who are in power, there's always going to be a limit to people who want to look like the powerless. So in a way, I mean, that goes to show even more how Prince's looks were so transgressive. Yeah, I... (laughs) I just I love to sort of fall into daydreams about Prince's fashion and how he adopted purple because it's the color of royalty. And purple is like traditionally it's just been a color that men are afraid of almost that it's just not masculine. Well, purple is just a challenging color in general. I'm trying to think of what purple like full on purple clothing that I own and only one one blouse comes to mind. Yeah, I like a nice, uh, a nice jewel tone purple, one that's a little bit on the redder side than the bluer side. Mm-hmm. Gotta say. Well, I mean, it, now we clearly need some some more purple clothing <laughs> yeah. to to honor Prince and some ruffles. Oh, so many ruffles. Um, I wish that <laughs> Prince's music rights weren't so exclusive, so we could have a song, maybe Raspberry Beret or something take us out of this this episode i know he would sue the crap out of us yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. from he would sue us from the grave yeah no really i bet he would yeah yeah um so before uh we end up getting sued by ghost prince (laughs) listeners we want to hear from you about queer fashion about prince your your favorite prince looks or songs anything that this podcast brought to mind and you want to share with us 
momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a letter here from Heather in response to our episode on tanning politics. And she writes, Listening to your discussion on farmer's tans in your great spray tan politics episode, I was inspired to write. I agree with everything you said about the different types of tans being markers of class. However, you might be interested to know that there's been a recent reclaiming of farmer's tans. I'm an organic farmer on Vancouver Island in Canada. Lots of times uh, listening to podcasts while weeding and harvesting. She says, I was Miss November in what was, I think, the original Farmer's Tans calendar. It was a fundraiser for the Rainbow Chard Collective, a group of farmers, LGBTQ and allies in particular, who used the funds to put on workshops for new farmers. Anyway, a quick Google search shows me that there have been quite a few other Farmer Tans calendars put out by other groups since then. Nowadays, most people see me as a middle-of-the-road, middle-aged farmer, business owner, and soccer mom. But Farmer's Tans is another side of me, an activist, environmentalist, and part of a community of amazing people of all ages, genders, and sexualities who love working hard and getting stuff done. We take pride in our not-sprayed-on, not full-bodied tans. So thank you so much, Heather. And uh, I had no idea that there were farmer tans calendars, and I look forward to Google imaging that ASAP. Well, I have a letter here from Sanaa in response to our colorism episode. She says, I'm Sanaa, 16, Indian and living in Canada. I really appreciated your recent episode on colorism because it's a very real thing. I'm fairly light-skinned, so people are usually surprised to find out that I'm Indian. Some boys have said, you don't look Indian to me, and meant it as a compliment. It's really disheartening because it sends the message the only way to be an acceptable brown girl is if you're not really brown at all. On another note, my mom has really light skin as well, and recently one of her younger friends got pregnant. This woman asked my mom whether she did something special or ate anything specific while pregnant, which made my skin much lighter because she was praying that her daughter's skin color would be like mine. This sort of broke my heart because I know that this woman will love her daughter regardless. The fact that skin color can affect a person's life even before they are born is heartbreaking. Anyways, good job with the podcast, and I look forward to hearing more of these interesting topics. Well, thank you, Sanaa. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about Prince, so you can learn more about queer fashion and Prince, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.